Welcome to the Secret Lair Drive-In with your hosts, D-Dub and Stratosphere. The Secret Lair Drive-In is dedicated to bringing you the finest in B-movie entertainment news and reviews. And now, on with the show. Mad Monster Party! Mad Monster Party! Starring Boris Karloff and, in order of their appearance... Dracula. Frankenstein. The Weirwolf. The Hunchback. The Mummy. Dr. Jekyll. <laughs> and, in order of his disappearance, The Invisible Man. Also starring Phyllis Diller as the hostess with the least. <laughs> Mad Monster Party. Let's dance. <laughs> it's a come-as-you-are party that's out of this world. You don't get invited. You get committed. It's a psychedelic scary. With the grooviest ghouls of all time. Mad Monster Party! <laughs> Anyone? It's a blast. Yeah. Lights out. And now the movies, folks. Well, welcome to yet another episode of It Came From Beneath the Drive-In Movie. You know, you could probably take that and put it a song, you know, like, It came from beneath the drive-in movie, shining on the silver screen. Ah, forget it. I'm here once again with my co-host, Stratosphere. Hey, kids. And today's movie is Mad Monster Party. A classic, if ever there was one. Well, first off, what we're going to do, we're going to set the Wayback Machine to the early 60s. Universal had just released, a few years prior, a package called the Shock Theater Package. And that's where a lot of your movie hosts started. And a really, I'd say, a love affair with monsters for a lot of the kids out there. And that's one thing I think, uh, let's talk about our first uh, digression for the evening, is that a lot of kids today just don't get the monster, the, you know, the horror host uh, thing, which I, I feel they, their cultural sensibilities are really being shortchanged. Oh, I agree. Um, I might direct 
both you and our listening audience to a very good documentary. It's called American Scary, and it's all about the horror host phenomenon, and it actually goes all the way from back at Vampira to the whole horror host subgenre now, where a lot of them are doing it on the Internet, and you have people like Dr. Gangrene or... There's a lot of cable access stuff that's going on now, or the what what the Internet equivalent of cable access is. Well, exactly, but at least they're keeping the spirit of the thing together. But anyway, getting this train back on track. <laughs> after the after the shock theater and the fascination with the monsters, Rankin Bass decided, after their success of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, ha, I didn't say ranger this time, that... Uh, and a nation is grateful. Well, at least one of our two listeners is anyway. We're up to three, I heard. Oh, well, I think he went to the bathroom this time. Okay, so two and a half. Well, okay. <laughs> two and a half listeners. Listeners. Oh, excuse me, we're in the digital age, 2.5. Anywho, my train of thought has just derailed. Ah, okay. after the success of Rudolph and Frosty and some of the other things that they've done for the holidays, they decided to put together a feature-length film using their Animagic, which is the stop motion. Which was also previously known by the, the name Puppetoons when it was used um, for the Gumby Classics. Right, and I'm not really sure. like a bad golf tournament, the Gumby Classic. Well, how many people out there remember Gumby? Well, aside from the Eddie Murphy thing. In 1967, they released Mad Monster Party. Actually, it was released like as, as a Saturday matinee type deal. And would you care to give us a real quick rundown on the uh, plot here? And also, I, I feel I should mention, uh, uh, I, and I just read about this today, a common misconception is that it is it was a Halloween release. It actually was not. It was released in the spring of 1967, I believe. It was basically just, it was supposed to be just a bunch of monsters. It was not intended to be a Halloween release. But I've, I've heard it referred to in several cases as Rankin-Bass Productions' entry into the Halloween genre, but that, that would be inaccurate. But then again, they didn't really show it all that often on, on TV. No, I, I remember seeing it one time only, uh, thanks to the, you know, the Internet age. I was able to procure a copy, and it basically played pretty much the way I remembered it. There are a few jokes I, I didn't get at the age of seven, but, you know, but basically, the plot, getting getting the train back once again on track, Baron von Frankenstein, uh, who is voiced by the late, great, uh, one and only Boris Karloff, decides to retire, leaving the monster business to his uh, nerdy nephew, Felix Flanken, who's uh, voiced by Alan Swift, who basically did all the voices, or most of the voices on uh, Underdog, and uh, every, everybody that's... Not Tennessee Tuxedo or Phineas J. Whoopi, but all the other voices pretty much Alan Swift did. Uh, quite quite a talented uh, individual, and basically he plays Felix Flanken as um, uh, Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, I can I can definitely hear that. Baron von Frankenstein plans to announce his decision to retire at a convention of monsters that includes. His creature and the creature's more intelligent mate, played by Phyllis Diller, always a classic. <laughs> always fun with Phyllis. It's hard to believe she's on soap operas now. Well, actually, I thought it was funny. Uh, she was on the Roseanne Barr reality show. 
at one point. Yes, Roseanne's nuts. Yes, there, that, you know, there's really nothing to elaborate on that. She's she's really. Anyway, uh, there's also Frankenstein's uh, seductive laboratory tor- assistant, Francesca, played by Gail Garnett, who uh, was also famous for the uh, classic uh, 60s song, We'll Sing in the Sunshine, which I thought was very interesting. It I must note here that I, I never would have gotten this uh, as a kid because it was before that time. But as I'm watching the character of Francesca, I kept thinking it was a very short version of Jessica Rabbit because she had the husky voice, the red hair. It, it looked like a like a animagic version of uh, Jessica Rabbit. Yeah, well, she did kind of predate a lot of the uh, redheaded bombshells that did show up. I, you know, I, I have to wonder if when they actually did Jessica Rabbit, if, if someone had thought back to that and said, wow, that would be a great character, because I, I, the parallels were very interesting. I'm not sure, but I think, I believe I heard that they actually did. Okay. that I would buy that. Um, I'd buy that for a dollar. Uh, uh. Let's see. All, all the monsters that were attending were Count Dracula, the werewolf, the creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, the, only referred to as the creature, though, for some reason. Yes. The Invisible Man, which, great touch, uh, if you notice, uh, when their invitations are sent out, his is an invisible ink, and he has to use, like, a candle to to, to view it, which probably my favorite touch in, in the whole entire movie. It was like, oh, wow, that's cool. Also, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which... Um, I, I, you know, I hate to sound politically correct. I really hated his inclusion because that's like the only time I've ever seen him portrayed as a monster. He's usually, he's usually a sympathetic character. Well, sure. Even going back to the Lon Chaney classic, or uh, didn't Charles Lawton play him once as well? Yes, I, I believe. I believe so. But yeah, I, I kind of, again, not not trying. Believe me, anybody that knows me knows I am not politically correct. But uh, I kind of thought that's not right. Well, keep in mind, this was the time before political correctness as well, though. Well, that is true. The good old days, as they say. Uh, let's see who else. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Mummy. Now, this is an interesting thing but because it, it kind of goes back to something we were talking about uh, in our previous session. Um, there's something that they refer to in the credits as It, which mm-hmm. is basically King Kong. So, I... I is is it your understanding that they couldn't procure the rights to the name, or they they actually could not uh, call it King Kong for whatever reason? Yeah, it, but guess what, folks? It's King Kong. Mm-hmm. If it if it looks like a King Kong and quacks like a King Kong, it's a King Kong. Let's see. And there were a few others. Uh, when Felix proves to be an incompetent and amazingly kind-hearted human, the monsters plot to eliminate him and gain control of Frankenstein's latest discovery, the secret of total destruction. He actually comes up with something that uh, is, it's like some sort of uh, applied phlebotonum that it's got nuclear capability. Hey, it's, it's a glowing blue goo or something. Yeah, but it's explosive glowing blue goo. So, yeah. And if memory serves, during the course of the movie, isn't it the bride who's really kind of driving the train to get rid of Felix? Well, because uh, she feels that the monster should uh, 
either the monster or her, I, I wasn't quite clear, but uh, she certainly feels that the nephew, Felix, uh, is not does, does not deserve the taking over of whatever whatever it is the, the Baron von uh, Frankenstein. I think it's something to the effect of the International Association of Monsters or something like that. I don't know. I, I, I do know that uh, Boris Karloff plays it brilliantly, but my only problem is I... I Every time he spoke, I kept expecting him to talk about the Who's down in Whoville. Yeah, and out of all of the different puppets, I think his is probably the one puppet that just, I don't know why, but it just kind of didn't really work for me. Well, its ba- <clears throat> I thought it was interesting because it's, it's based on him, what Boris Karloff looked, looked like in real life. And if you were noticing closely for the Frankenstein monster... And this was a nice touch, I thought. They basically took the same head and kind of just painted it green and black, you know. Yeah, I that I think that was intentional because a lot of the character designs for this one were done by Jack Davis, who's done a lot of. Uh, I noticed that. I was. I, I mean, my, uh, as I mentioned, I was I was watching it with my daughter because I actually I had found a copy some time back, and I said to my daughter who loves stuff like this. I said, you know, you, I think you'll like this. Of course, she came up to me and I said, that's really awesome. It looks so much like Rudolph, but it's not. And when um, she was watching it with me, I started, you know, I was like, oh my God, Jack Davis. And I'm trying to, you know, explain Mad Magazine, which is totally not on her radar because it's it's so in the past. Well, Mad Magazine really isn't on much of anybody's radar anymore. It's gone so far downhill. It's got ads. And I, I really need to say no more. It's got ads. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I saw that Jack Davis uh, did the designs for the characters, and I was just, like, in, in total, you know, totally geeking out because, you know, Jack Davis is, is a living legend, one, one of the greats. Well, you want another Mad Magazine uh, connection. Oh, Sure. You can never have too many Mad Magazine connections. Uh, part of the script was written by Harvey Kurtzman. Really? Yes, indeed. Wow. Another living legend. Is he still alive? I don't know. We can uh, we can tune into the Wayback Machine to find out. I think we already took the Wayback Machine to the early 60s. <laughs> um, well, as far, as far as the movie itself, there are a couple of points where it, at least in my mind, it tends to drag a little bit. I would agree with that statement. I think I think they do fine Rankin Bass, I mean, in perhaps an hour long production. Um there were a couple of things that really could have been pulled out of there. I think at least one of the musical numbers. Not not the mummy dance. <laughs> not the mummy dance. The mummy dance was cool. <laughs> it it was one the mummy dance was one of those things that it it kind of sucked, and yet it came back around to being cool. It it had such a kitsch factor to it. It was like, oh my god, this is awesome. Yeah, I I can remember as a kid though watching this and thinking, my goodness, they're not gonna they're not gonna do a song for every monster, are they? Because I don't know. I did think the same thing. By the way, just just to follow up on something, uh, Harvey Kurtzman passed away in 1993. Oh, okay. And, and the I, world is a sadder place for that. Well, on some on some episode of one of the podcasts at one point, I think we might uh, have to do a little Mad Magazine retrospective. 
Oh my gosh, where where do we begin? That well, that that is for another day. But uh, yeah, if you if you grew up in the '60s and '70s, yeah, Mad Mad Magazine. You, I I literally have never met anyone that doesn't didn't have at least one issue of it somewhere. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, just as an observation, probably my other uh favorite part of the movie because I thought it was kind of subtle was um, at one point the the Frankenstein monster's wife Phyllis Diller uh, she gets into a fight with uh, the lab assistant and all of a sudden you hear yeah little subtle touches like that do a lot yeah yeah I, I it, it was my, uh, again I'm watching with my daughter and she's like why are they why is it making that noise and I said cat fight get it and she's like, oh okay yeah, um, there were there was one particular scene that actually it was so stupid that I couldn't help but laugh about it. There were many moments in this movie that fit that exact description. Well, this going. was the one where the lab assistant goes on a picnic with Felix, and I, I think I know the line you're talking about. But go ahead. Well, I wasn't even thinking of a line. It's just this really stupid scene where Dracula keeps trying to pounce, and I don't know if he's hanging onto a branch by his feet. But he keeps going around, and every time he comes down, Felix goes back into the picnic basket. Yeah, okay, yeah, that that was good. In in that same scene, there's a there's a bit where Felix is trying to carry her, and he's like having a hard time, and she makes a crack like, "I didn't want you to think I was an easy pickup." And again, so cheesy, so lame. I laughed in spite of myself. Oh, how can you not? How can you not? <laughs> and basically. Uh, to sum up the plot, spoiler alert, the monsters wind up getting blown up by the phlebotanum that... Uh, the, the blue stuff. The blue stuff, yeah. And they get blown up, so it's basically Felix and the lab assistant are alone in a boat where they're they're pledging their undying love, but she reveals that she is a creature, yeah, like a, a creature, I guess, like like the Frankenstein monster, and in what I'm assuming is a nice little nod to uh, the ending of Some Like It Hot, suddenly he, he starts acting mechanical and said, nobody's perfect, nobody's perfect, nobody's perfect. And that's pretty much where it ends. Overall, I'd say it was, it was definitely, it's definitely an amusing flick, something you definitely should see at least once. For my own taste, I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's something that I watch on a regular basis. That's something. You, I guess even though, as I said earlier, it wasn't intended for a Halloween release. Uh, if you were having a Halloween party, it'd be a, it'd be kind of a cool, funny thing to have on in the background. I'm sure if you're you're rip roaring celebrating uh, the holiday, I'm sure it's uh, the the fun increases dramatically. I'd definitely like to see a, a mystery science theater treatment of it. That would definitely be cool, uh, or even like a riff track for it. Um, I, what I'll probably do is I'll probably put it into the rotation with all the universal stuff because, I don't know, it's kind of a personal coda of mine. I only watch universal stuff in October. Okay. And really, uh, the only one I make an exception for is probably my favorite of the universals, and that's Creature from the Black Lagoon. I never got into Creature, mainly because um, I always had a hard time staying up that late when they'd show it on, on the late show. Well, a couple of years ago, Universal released, uh, I can't remember if it's called Legacy Editions, but mm -hmm. they did. They did the big three, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Dracula. Then they also did The Mummy, 
the creature from the Black Lagoon and the um, Invisible Man. And basically what they did was they took all of the films with that particular creature and put them on the disc. Okay. And I did manage to get copies of all of those. And what I I did watch all three of the creatures and I did something really... I did, I did the entire werewolf cycle because, you know... Okay. There's like five movies where he did... And it's actually an over... Uh, how can I put this? It's actually a story arc about them, you know, from where he first goes to where he ultimately is cured. Well, let me ask you this. Um, are any of the Abbott and Costello movies included in that? This is a serious question. Uh, no, they're not. Uh, because some of those were actually quite well done. The, the Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman. That, mm-hmm. I, I actually consider that a legitimate entry into the Wolfman series because it, it's really well done. I mean, they, they, they have Abbott and Costello for, you know, comic relief, of course, but the, the actual storyline, it's, it's, it's actually one of the better entries in the series, in my opinion. I've seen, uh, Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, and I, don't think I've seen any of the others, but those were not included in that particular disc. What I'd like to see them do is have a compilation of all of the different uh, Abbott and Costello horror ones. Okay. Yeah, I believe there's, um, see, I know the, I think the Invisible Man. The Invisible Man actually did show up at the end of... Yes. Here, Here's and a bit of trivia for he, you. And he was voiced by Vincent Price. Is that what you were going to say? Yes, it was. Yeah. But here's here's another interesting piece of trivia for you. Um, there were only really two occasions where Bela Lugosi played Dracula. One was in Dracula, obviously, mm-hmm. and the other one was in Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Are we counting Plan 9 from Outer Space in that? Because he, he didn't no. technically play Dracula, but basically he was Dracula. Well, actually... For, for, for the in, 30 seconds he was in the movie. Well, yeah, then it was like his uh, Ed Wood's dentist or something. Yes. Wait a minute. Okay. I figured out how to do sound effects while we're recording, just yes. so you know, folks. We have high-tech equipment now. It's like gives the illusion of, of professionalism, which is also more important than actual professionalism. Ask anybody that works for the government. All I keep hearing is my headphones creaking. I just keep hearing the, the hissing of uh, when I'm getting too close to the microphone like this. Hey, we got a really good level on at that time. Yeah, if we had a sound engineer, he'd be having a, a coronary arrest. Yeah, but uh, Bela Lugosi actually in... Bela Lugosi actually played Frankenstein's monster in one of them, if I'm remembering correctly. He did. I believe it was Frankenstein versus the, the Wolfman. Wolf yeah. Yes. Yeah, he, he pl- which... That's a, that's a bit of trivia that usually blows people away because it's, it's one of these... Uh, Trick questions, true or false, Bela Lugosi played Frankenstein's monster. It's like, well, technically, it's true. Well, you know, he was originally offered the role of Frankenstein monster, but due to the makeup, he didn't want to do it. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay, so you got any final thoughts on this film? Um, kind of like you. I... I remember seeing it when I was a kid. Um, it was about what I remembered. Like I said, there, there were a few... Um, there were a few jokes I didn't get, you know, at the age of seven, when it, which is probably how old I was when I saw it. But it it had a coolness factor to it. Again, you, you know, you've seen 
you've seen Rudolph and all that type of thing, you know, over and over and over, and it it's really neat to see that type of animation, but in a completely different genre, you know. And, yeah, and it's something it's, not quite so holiday, so cheerful. Yeah, and it's not quite as um, insane as something like Robot Chicken, which I realize is more claymation. This well, is you know, there is one thing about this and Robot Chicken. If you look at the bride's mouth, it kind of moves the same way that the mouse do on Robot Chicken. You know, a lot of the other ones, the jaws will move or something like that. But the bride, it's like they stuck a piece of paper on her for different things. Oh, okay. Interesting. I hadn't noticed that. Oh, what, just one other character that uh, Alan Swift did. There's, there's like a flunky of of the Barons, and he it's basically a rip on Peter Lorre. I just yeah, I think that, he's that, supposed to be a zombie. Yeah, that that was one character that kind of fell flat for me because I couldn't quite get a get a take on what he was quote unquote supposed to be. But, well, um, they had all the zombie bellhops when they were setting up for the party, and... Yeah, that kind of lost me, too. But overall, I would recommend this to someone, especially, you know, animation fans in general will will love it, if only for the the novelty of it, because there's really, again, Robot Chicken notwithstanding, I can't think of anything that I've ever seen that's quite like it. And uh, horror fans... um, it's it's again it's kind of a unique uh, entry into the horror genre, but uh, well done I'd say. Yep, and they definitely had a I would say they definitely had an affection for the material. Uh yes, if if not necessarily a, a great execution uh, execution of their ideas, but I definitely got the sense that this was this was not uh, executive meddling. This was more. Uh, people who knew the genre and knew how to write for it. Um, that's the problem, and, and I, I did notice this, is that in an age where we're so used to the laugh track, a lot of what I, a lot of the jokes I saw in this movie, I think if it played in a theater and you were surrounded by people and you were all laughing instinctively at the same moment, I think these moments would come across as a lot funnier. Whereas just sitting there watching it more or less by myself, and it's it's like it kind of falls flat, you know. Uh, uh, that type of thing always sound is better when you're in in a group situation. Oh yeah, and if you were sitting around watching it with a bunch of friends and giving it the old MST3K treatment, it could be, I could definitely see that this film would be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Okay, Strat. Wow. You're sitting there on the microphone? That makes you a Stratocaster. Yeah, I I know. That just... Never mind. What's our uh, film for next week, or next time? Well, since since we've had such a, a great time uh, doing this so far and uh, trying to, uh, you know, up our game, so to speak, uh, next point, or next time, is going to be a double feature. A double feature? That's right, a double feature. We're doing not only the first abominable, abominable Dr. Fives, but its sequel, Dr. Fives Rises Again. Ooh, a Vinnie Price double feature. I can't wait. And if we're, if we're lucky, we'll get, we'll get cooking tips from Mr. Price. 
Well, there is the Brussels sprout scene. Yes. Okay, so for It Came From Beneath the Drive-In Theater, this is D-Dub. And Stratosphere. Saying, enjoy your evening and go watch a B-movie. And if you can't find that, find a Z-movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater.